Okay, so we are in uh, the really the, the the back end of our discussion on the the doctrine of worship, and uh, we took a week off last week. Mark Hatfield was here, but we are back now. And so, if you remember what we had talked about the two weeks prior to last, was really worship through the ages, and it was an incredible, I mean, two weeks, so an incredibly brief and in some way, you know, truncated look at uh, the practices of the church from the early church through uh, the Reformation. And we saw um, different elements, uh, different liturgies that they uh, would have liturgy just being the set form of, of worship that you have each week. And, um, and so we, we looked at a bunch of their different uh, liturgies that they had from the early church to the medieval church, both in the West and the East. And then in the Reformation, we saw Luther, Calvin, uh, Zwingli. And so now... Um, we want to look at Puritan worship and then leading into worship in the modern day. In the English-speaking world in the 17th century, yeah, uh, the Westminster Assembly enacted one of the great experiments in reforming Reformed worship. So the worship of the church was reformed uh, in the, um, the 1500s with Luther and Calvin's Bingley, and then that continues, right? That's sempra reformanda, that always reforming, being conformed to the word of God in our worship. And so the Westminster Assembly came up with the directory of public worship, which set the ground rules for what ought to be in each worship service, uh, generally speaking, and then it allowed individual ministers to put specific content into each component. And so, for example, the, the service of the Puritans, in a general sense, would have looked like this. They would have began with a call to worship, and they would have had pr- a prayer of adoration and supplication. They would have sung a psalm. They would have had an Old Testament reading, um, then sung another psalm. They would have uh, then had a New Testament reading. There would have been a, a prayer of confession and general, and general intercession to be followed by a sermon. After the sermon, there would have uh, been offered a prayer of thanksgiving and special intercession. Uh, then they would have uh, sung or, or chanted, recited the Lord's Prayer. There would have been an offering. And, um, and as often as they did it, they would have had uh, the Lord's Supper, and then they would have uh, prayed again, sung a psalm, and then closed with a benediction. Now, I say all that, but the Puritan tradition was not uh, a single entity, wasn't monolithic, in other words, uh, in its approach to worship. There was a lot of differences within their tradition. Uh, but one thing we can say uh, about the Puritans is that they were moving away from uh, a, sh- a very strict liturgy to 
a less strict liturgy. Within the Reformation, liturgies were very strict. There were set prayers that would have been written down beforehand, either passed down through the ages or, you know, either at least thought out beforehand. But the, the Puritans moved a little more away from that towards more spontaneous forms of worship. Uh, Puritanism tended to remove any vocal participation from the congregation, except uh, for essentially um, confirming the... Uh, they were singing, and then they would confirm the truth of prayers with amen. But there were not many uh, responsive readings uh, or things like that. That the, the congregation tended to be... Uh, more silent in the Puritan tradition than they had been in the, the Reformation. According to one author, uh, though the, the permanent strengths of the, the Puritan movement were its sense of reverence and anticipation, its conscious, prayerful reliance on the Holy Spirit to bless every ordinance, its Eucharistic consciousness, so Eucharistic being the Lord's Supper, so its awareness of the seriousness of the Lord's Supper, and perhaps its unrivaled sermonic power. Some of the most powerful preaching and sermons that we have records of come from the Puritan movement. Uh, So, sort of in a nutshell, that's some characteristics of the Puritan movement. Very similar in a lot of ways to the Reformation, but there was a slightly more, uh, in terms of the content of the things said, there was a more spontaneity. Right? There was less reciting things from the ages down to more things on the spot, as it were. Any thoughts or questions about Puritanism or how that comes from Reformation or anything? Makes sense? Yeah, uh, it could be a number of, of reasons. It, one potential, uh, I guess, reason for that that I, I came across was um, d- during all of this time, there's a lot of persecution happening, kind of from both sides of the aisle in different ways. With, because there, within, through the Middle Ages and in the Reformation, um, there's a, a big emphasis, uh, or not a big emphasis, but there is there was really no distinction between church and state. Or there's, there was, but it was, there wasn't a good separation of the two. And so when a Catholic person, perhaps, was in power, who was persecuted? Protestants, uh, when a Protestant person was in power, who was persecuted? If someone was persecuted, it would have been Catholics. And, um, you know, and even within Protestantism, if there were different... Um, because we talked really about the Reformation um, <clears throat> in Germany and um, you know Switzerland and a few other places, but uh, we didn't really mention the one in uh, England. Um, and so there's just so much going on with different, even Protestant groups taking power different places. And so um, one idea was that... Uh, there's an, been an objection to the um, uh, some of the more liturgical, so it's swinging in the opposite direction. So, um, in different places, 
the Anglicans maybe being in power, they're, they're pretty liturgical, so in this Puritan movement away from that, they're trying to distance themselves from that. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but Tris. Right. Um, yeah, I think so. And it still kind of is today, you know. Yeah, that, you know, to be puritanical is kind of a bad thing um, and for most people. But if you know anything about the Puritans, they were really, the way we define Puritan, <laughs> puritanical is, is really nothing like what they were. You know, they wore often kind of loud, flamboyant <laughs> clothing, uh, and they were, they liked music and drinking or whatever. Like it wasn't, uh, there wasn't this like very straight laced kind of uh, movement. Um, they certainly had their faults, but I think the faults that they're often criticized for today are probably unfair and, and not true of them. Um, But what we see happening, though, that there is this, there's a transition that begins to take place. And while I don't think it's the fault of anybody within the Puritan movement, there's a, a transition from objectivity to subjectivity that begins to take place here. Um, and moving into, if that's all that we want to say about the Puritans, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, essentially. I mean, that... Um, but there is, you know, again, there's uh, a lot of differences. Uh, there's not a monolithic movement. I mean, nothing kind of ever is, you know. Even things that claim to be often aren't, though kind of exactly the same all the way through and through. But, um, yeah, that with that idea of the emphasis on truth and theology, there's a, a, a clear kind of stream from the Reformers to the Puritans. Yeah. And so Protestant... Christendom today. How do we get from the Reformation to here? Well, through the, the Puritans. And so, while we've all, all too briefly considered these things, um, I want to look at this transition that takes place. So, like I said, that if, if one word uh, could, if you had to use one word to capture the, the, uh, the, the, the atmosphere of the church today, what word might you use? What's that? Liberal, okay. Yeah, just like kind of mainstream, like especially Western, like church, you know. But division, okay. So liberal division. Um, what about when we talk about truth? Fearless. Careless. Careless. Oh, yeah. Sounds like. Fearless, maybe. Careless, that's a better word. Whose truth, right? So that idea of subjectivity. So there's a lot of words you could use. But the word that, at least as far as this conversation goes, that we'll use is subjective. And by subjective, we mean this. Or I mean this. It is a tendency to construct, uh, and I, I got this from a guy named Nick, Nick Needham. Is that how you say his name? This subjectivity constructs and evaluates worship in terms of its 
human subject. Human experiences, human feelings, human responses, rather than in terms of the divine object, God. The blessed, self-revealing Trinity and His will, His word, and His activity. Right? When we think about, like, the atmosphere of Christianity today in America, when people are talking about what they like about their churches, very often they're going to describe the way they feel, the way they think, their experience, rather than anything that can be really measured objectively about the church. So while this subjectivity takes many forms, the common element of this definition that I think is found in so many people's um, and even entire churches' understanding is that worship is something we experience rather than something we offer. I don't think, in some ways, it has to... I don't think it's an either-or, right? I think it's a both-and. Worship is something we experience and something we offer. But when we say it is only something we experience... It is the quality of that experience that becomes the measuring rod for what is effective worship. Right? We will sign off on worship, the worship of a church, as good if the quality of my experience there is positive. Right? They, we will consider, and I don't think maybe we do as much, but often people will consider what church they should attend by how they felt before, during, and after the service. I'm not saying we shouldn't ever, we shouldn't think about that, but that becomes the sole standard for determining good and bad churches, or however you want to phrase that. Right? If I leave a service feeling better than when I came, I'm much more likely to return to the church. But if I leave feeling maybe the same or god forbid worse, then I'm less likely to return. Now, what I mean by that, well, let me ask you this. Does that mean then, if you can tell where I'm going with this, that we should hope to feel worse when we leave Church. When we're done with our service this morning, should we all leave like this? Like uh, Charlie Brown, right? Truth. Yeah. Yes. Right? And, and so that's ultimately where we're going. We need to have conviction, but we also have to have, if we're trusting in Christ, assurance and hope that doesn't do away with the conviction, but gives us strength to endure in the midst of conviction, knowing that as we are sanctified, God is cleansing us from our sins, and we know that He has forgiven us of our sins, right? We don't, like the aim here is not that we're all going to leave feeling like we are the worst, most awful people on planet Earth, and that there's no hope for us, right? Like that is like the opposite of the point is that this is the place, not Ephesus Church alone, but the worship 
of God's people, Christ, is the place where hope is found. But if we make the standard just how I feel, has nothing to do with what I think, what's been changed, uh, what has been offered to the Lord, what God thinks, right? How does God feel when we leave? How do we feel when we leave? Who is at the center of that question? So oftentimes, what we have, though, is that regardless of what churches say or what they do, if people can leave the weekly meeting feeling whatever particular desire it is that they want, whatever feeling they want, because you could go the other way, right? If I think that I'm supposed to feel bad when I leave, then I'm going to find a church where I get a lot of that, right? Yeah. But that's, especially in our very sensitive culture, that's very rare that that's what people want. So regardless of what churches do, though, I will consider returning as long as that feeling remains. Actually, it's not so, I don't want the feeling to remain, I want it to get better, right? Because if I go one week, I leave and I'm like, oh, that was great. If I can't say that was excellent the next week, and superb the week after that, and fantastic after that, like, then there's something, what's that? Right, exactly. The hedonistic paradox, right? It's like a drug. It always, it's got to get better and better. And when it doesn't, I begin to reevaluate. Hmm. Where can I get that feeling again? Well, somewhere new, obviously. New is always, the adrenaline's going. I don't know any of these people. The songs are different. The, the preacher's more animated. The people are prettier. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that is what we kind of have. How do we get there? Because that didn't just happen overnight. I think there's a series of steps that was taken from the general atmosphere of the Reformation to where we are today. First, within the Puritan movement itself, I think, what we see emphasized greatly within Puritanism is the conversion of souls through preaching. In a lot of ways, right, that the conversion of sinners is a, a often repeated theme in Puritan sermons and writings, and that's a good thing. I think what happened, though, and not necessarily in their minds, but in some people's minds, is that as the sermon becomes everything, right? Not only is the sermon central to worship, but it becomes maybe the only aspect of worship. But even more specific than the sermon itself is the response to the sermon, right? You see that? If there's a conversion of souls becomes my primary, if that's my driving factor, then the response that people have to the sermon I preach is going to become that motivating fact. That's, that's what I'm chasing after. 
And I think, again, the Puritans maintained a, a good balance of truth, of objective truth, and this subjective response. But I don't think that was held on to as time went on, as we'll see. So if the criterion of effect is the criterion of effect is, is adopted by the church, then it becomes very difficult for the services not to run off the rails attempting to find the best effect. A guy I quoted earlier, Nick Needham, he says, even of Puritanism, the congregation has become an audience, the minister has become an order, and everything else in the service can, safe, can be safely ignored or even treated with casual contempt. The only thing that really matters is to be uplifted through the sermon. This is contentious ground, and as I've said, I am in no way an expert on church history generally, or certainly the Puritans. Um, But I find, and this is really another guy's argument, I find it compelling that a potential explanation of how we get from the Reformation to the modern age is this transition of subjectivity. So with all the good of Puritanism, it wasn't perfect, that there, within Puritanism there are, there are elements of truth, maybe you would even call them half-truths, that they perhaps balanced well with other truths, right? Subjective response to the sermon has to be regulated by objective truth revealed in the sermon, right? But as the emphasis in some people's minds continued to be on the effect rather than on the objective truth of God's word, we see this transition. And so we could call this the first triumph of subjectivity, as that there's an emphasis on the effect of the sermon. But to be clear, the Puritans, I think, by and large, grasp well the balance between objective truth being preached and the subjective response. But, secondly, uh, as Pentecostalism swept onto our scene via the Azusa Street Revival uh, in 1906 through 1913, and then in the 1950s and 60s, Pentecostalism jumps ship into mainstream Christianity in the form of the Charismatic Movement, we have the second triumph of subjectivity. Here's what we have. There was a tendency set in motion to relocate the uplifting experience of, worship, of the worshiping subject from the sermon to what? Anything else. Right? Because maybe people noticed, you know, music can be far more powerful than someone just standing up there and talking. So, the, it's no longer the effect of the sermon that we're, wondering, that we're interested in. It's the effect of the manifestations of the Spirit. The alleged manifestations of the Spirit. So, we're looking for tongues, prophecies, healings, slayings in the Spirit, and on and on. The issue is no longer objective truth. Right? What, what the Puritans did so well in proclaiming the objective truth of God's Word gets forsaken. 
So the objective truth of the Bible is proclaimed from the pulpit. That's not an issue any longer. It is a subjective response of the man or woman in the pew to whatever means you have at hand to draw forth that subjective response. It's completely disconnected from anything said in the pulpit. One account of the Azusa Street Revival describes public weeping, shouting, dancing, leaping, lying in a heap on the, the rostrum before the congregation, falling backwards across steps, constant speaking in tongues, often simultaneously, which were not understood or interpreted. So now we have this complete forsaking of um, the love and adherence to objectivity in favor of complete subjective nonsense, right? How do you know that uh, the Spirit is at work? Right? That's maybe the question that begins to be asked. Well, it's not because there are signs of conviction, uh, confession of sin, repentance, spiritual illumination, quickening, edification in Christ. Those no longer become, became the things people cared about. What they care about? People falling over feeling physical sensations, undergoing emotional euphoria, and eventually hysterical laughter and animal noises. Animal noises. Like barking like dogs, howling like wolves. How do you know the Spirit is at work in your midst? Well, because Jane could not stop laughing. And Fred cock-a-doodled. Right? Now, obviously, that is an insane leap from any amount of emphasis on subjectivity from the purists. But I think that's what happened, is that we hear, oh, you know, we, we grow up in this climate stressing subjectivity, and then someone, and then we see this, just as an example in our own context of this sweeping the nation of Pentecostalism. And so, Needham asked this pointed question, where does the Spirit through Scripture, sanction that. Barking like dogs and all of that. What's that? Exactly, yes. And so, but because the idea of objective truth, and this, a lot of this comes to, to us also through the Enlightenment, uh, which... Uh, moved from a dependence upon God for uh, or everything, this theistic worldview, to a deistic worldview, to now a self-proclaimed atheistic worldview. comes along with this, that, that, that uh, disregard for objective truth. Absolute truth, culturally, was not necessary, and that pervaded the church as well. That that was Paul, that was true for Paul in 1 Corinthians 14, orderly service, but not for us, because we've got people running around the sanctuary, doing laps, throwing their coats on the pastor, d- jumping into the baptismal pool. You can see that video on YouTube, it's no joke, like, so we're not interested in our culture today in what the Word of God says because we care solely about 
the response people have. Now, this is not to say that every church, praise God, in our culture, is engulfed in this nonsense. But there are a large number of churches. Some, perhaps, even to some degree in our very area. That they have untethered themselves from the Word of God. And so apart from a correction of the Holy Spirit, they will soon find themselves, to whatever degree uh, that they're at in this spectrum, they will find themselves in this quagmire. And so, in our next uh, several weeks, as we, as we wrap this class up, uh, I want to give our attention to the various elements and aspects of worship that we ought to have in order to have a God-glorifying and congregation-edifying worship. So, we'll look uh, first at the regulative principle of worship. We've talked, like basically, we've laid all the groundwork for that. We'll talk about that next week, and we'll begin looking at various elements that generally ought to be required in our worship services, and then we'll, we'll close, really, the class by saying, now, what do we have here at Ephesus Church? Why do we do what we do? Not to say that what we do is the only way that is in any way conceivable as possible, but to, uh, to stress that we're seeking to be as biblical as possible. So we want to be at, uh, aware of why we do what we do. So let me pray real quick, and then we'll be done. Father, thanks for your word, and I pray that you would, you would teach us by it. Uh, thank you for worship and uh, for your people who have, are gathering here this morning. I pray that you would meet with us, that you would draw near to us, that you would convict us of our sins, that you would reveal yourself to us by your word, that we would know you better when we leave from here, that we would be more holy, that we would live more godly lives, that we would love you more, we would love one another more. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.